Welcome to the Kalos Church Podcast. We're so honored that you're joining us today. The word Kalos is a poorly pronounced Greek word that means beautiful. And we believe here at Kalos that the words and the ways of Jesus are very beautiful. That's why each week we're bringing content to make known that beauty. So let's go ahead and jump right in to this last Sunday's sermon. is Jesus? It's a question that people have been answering for thousands of years. I want to read this quote to you by N.T. Wright. It says this, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama which has him as the central character. Look at Jesus. I think that this is a profound question. I believe that it is a question that Jesus is asking us today. Who is he? Who do people say that he is? And it's a question that we find that Jesus asked his disciples in the scripture. So we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 16. And it says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So Jesus takes his disciples, who he had been spending time with, to the city called Caesarea Philippi. Now, I want to bring some context to you about this city and about this moment where Jesus asks this really profound question to his disciples. Caesarea of Philippi was actually a city in northern Israel, and it was considered the sin city of Israel. It was kind of like the red light district of Israel. It was very very pagan. There was a lot of pagan worship and sacrifice happening. It was very, very secular. And the disciples are probably like, Jesus, why did you bring us to Sin City? Why are you asking us this question? And it's really crazy because uh, the Greeks actually worshipped the Greek uh, mythological god named Pan. And Pan, actually I have a picture of Pan right here. Pan was this half human, half God, sort of, or half human, half goat kind of God who played this like weird flute thing, right? And I think I have another picture of Pan as well. And I want to explain to you, there he is. This is the the Greek mythological God that they worshipped. And what was crazy about Caesarea Philippi is that the name of it came from the son of Herod the Great. You remember in the scriptures when Herod killed all of the babies? Do you guys remember that? Well, he had sons. And one of his sons was over this region. And he named this region Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea for after Caesar, uh, the great emperor emperor that that demanded to be worshipped, it would cost you your life if you did not say that he was God, right? And the second part of the name he named after, well, himself. Philippi. And so uh, wouldn't you name your region after yourself as well? And so it's Caesarea Philippi. And this is what it was known for. And there was just so much secular worship and the worship of this Greek god Pan. Now, 
I have a fun fact for you this morning, and that is this. Disney actually took their cues from this mythical god and created who we all now know as Peter Pan. Peter Pan. Did you ever notice that Peter Pan had this flute that he always carried around? Isn't that interesting? Uh, I really hope that the Greek god Pan has nothing to do with my husband, Pradi Pan. Thankfully, Pradeepan does not play the flute. Hallelujah. Okay, so that's kind of a fun fact, bonus fun fact for you. Uh, well, and it, actually, before I get to that, how many of you have ever eaten the, uh, uh, the Peter Pan peanut butter? Say that seven times, okay? And you can see, I have another picture. There it is on there, uh, if you've ever seen that. So Disney kind of picked this up and, and named Peter Pan after the origins of this Greek god, okay? So just for fun, I want to see how many of you are crunchy peanut butter fans. You love a country. Okay, you are my people. I'm a crunchy peanut butter person. All right, where am I? A creamy, smooth. Ooh, you don't want any nut. You don't want anything in your creamy, smooth peanut. You know what? This service wins the creamy peanut butter battle. Last service. Last service was the crunchy peanut butter. You, you people and my son are all on the same page with the creamy peanut butter. All right, bonus fun fact for you this morning. Because Pan was the god of the forest, uh, really what it meant is that when there was eerie sounds that came from the forest or when, when the god Pan became angry, the people would actually kind of freak out. And another word for that, the etymology of the English word panic also came from this Greek mythology god. So when they heard these sounds, when Pan was really angry, they would panic. And that's where we get the word panic. Isn't that interesting? So we see that we even use some of this language today. But what I want us to understand is the, the scene in which Jesus has brought his disciples to. I want us to understand the background, all of this situation in such a secular place, in a place where they were sacrificing goats. They were having sexual relations with goats. I mean, this was a disgusting, kind of an awful place. And here it is. Jesus looks at his disciples. And he says, who do people say the son of man is? And then he looks at them and he says, who do you say that I am? And what I think Jesus is asking here is he wants to know, where do I stand among the people? What do people think about me? Where do, where do I stand in your heart? What is it that you think, what, what do I mean to you? disciples? What, what do I mean to? He's asking this very intimate question in this crazy environment that is all around them. Have you ever wondered where you stand with someone? You're not quite sure if they like you or not. There's not really a lot of clarity in your relationship. Have you ever wondered that before? Uh, you know, I'm not proud of it, but I want to admit that in high school, my senior year, I actually sort of dated a guy. I sort of led him on the whole year, so much so that I refused to call us boyfriend and girlfriend. I didn't want anyone to know that we were kind of hanging out, and I, I just left him in with this big question mark, and he would just wonder, Amritha, where do I stand with you? Do you like me? Are we together? Are we not together? And you know what? I had told myself, oh, by the way, we were musical theater geeks. Any mu musical theater people out here? Um, you're like afraid to raise your hand. Okay, it's okay. <laughs> 
I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. And so we like spent all this time together, me and this guy. Well, then we not only became friends, we became more than friends. Well, I told myself my senior year, I do not want to date anyone my senior year. Well, then I just started like having fun with this guy. And this poor guy, you guys, I just let him on this whole time. Like I said, I'm not proud of it. And he just wondered, where do I stand with you? Who do you think I am to you? Do you see? So we have this question. Well, funny part, not so funny part of this story is that after uh, I actually ended it, the end of senior year, and it, the, the ending did not go well, as you can imagine. And he said some really mean things. I deserved it. And it just sort of ended up like this ugly breakup. And I was so excited to leave high school and get rid of the drama. And I go to college. And guess who's on my college campus the first day? This guy who I think decided to haunt me for my whole freshman year. He decided to go to school at the same place that I did. So I just thought this must be a punishment uh, for leading this guy on for a whole year. But anyway, he just wondered this question, where do I stand with you? Who am I to you? And I believe that this is the question that Jesus is asking back then, and he's asking us this question today. As people who are living right here in Seattle, Bellevue, all this region, who do you say that Jesus is? If Jesus was standing here today and he asked you this question, who do you say that he is at your place of work? Who do you say that he is among your friends and your neighbors? Who do you say that Jesus is? You know, I think in this room alone, there may, there may be a variety of answers. Outside of this room, I know there are a broad spectrum of answers of who Jesus is. I think some people believe that Jesus is a God among many gods. They have a polytheistic perspective on religion. There are many different gods. Some people believe that Jesus is Lord of our lives, that he died, he was buried and resurrected so that we might have everlasting eternal life with him. Some people believe that Jesus is just sort of a positive example. And when I hang out with Christian people, I get positive vibes. And he, Jesus gives me kind of like a set of morals to sort of follow. But he's not someone that I would make Lord of my life or surrender my life to. Uh, so people believe that about Jesus. A lot of people believe that Jesus was just a prophet, that he was never crucified. Buddhists believe that Jesus was an enlightened man. Hindus believe that Jesus was one of many ishtas, ranking the different gods in their religion. People think many different things about who Jesus is. So you see how this is an important question that Jesus poses before his disciples. Well, I believe, church, that it is vital that in our day we discover who Jesus truly is according to the word of God. Can I get an amen? It's very important that we clarify this. So today I want to help us. I want to talk about who Jesus is and who he isn't by first looking at who Jesus claimed to be. And then we're going to look at the evidence behind those claims. Now, I want to tell you, this is a, a message that I wish I would have heard as a young person about who Jesus is. It's also a message that is very interesting because it's a lot of facts. It's a lot of quotes. So I hope you follow me today and just really lean in because I want you to grasp. We're not going to be able to cover all of it fully who Jesus is and the claims and the evidence, but we are going to get a taste of it. And my hope is that God would put a hunger in you that you would continue this search about who Jesus is in your life. Amen? Okay, so number one is this. Who did Jesus claim to be? Well, the biggest claim that Jesus made about himself is that he was God. 
John 10.30 says this, the Father and I are one. Jesus is talking. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. And Jesus said, at my Father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? And they replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. Out of all of the things that Jesus did, the thing that made them the most angry was the fact that they believed that he was blasphemy. He be- they believed that he should not, this random guy, just claim to be God. And we see that it ended up killing Jesus through this claim. All right. John 14, 9 says, anyone who has seen me, this is Jesus talking again, has seen the father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am the father and the father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the father and the father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. This claim was so outrageous, so outrageous that there's a famous quote uh, by a famous author named C.S. Lewis, who wrote the book Mere Christianity. He also wrote uh, Chronicles of Narnia. I want to read this quote to you. I think it's really fascinating. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil in hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to be obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Jesus claiming to be God, I believe, has significant evidence behind it. We're going to get there in just a a moment. I want to tell you just a few more claims that Jesus made. Uh, Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. He's saying there's not a bunch of ways to get to heaven. You've got to come through me to get to my Father. That's a big claim. One of my favorite claims that Jesus made uh, is found in John 11, 25. And it speaks to the human experience and suffering of pain that we have all gone through. And maybe you remember this story, but Lazarus had just died. And his sister Martha was incredibly grieving and suffering the death of her brother. I mean, she was in such agony that she went to Jesus. And many of you, maybe you've experienced a death of a loved one. And you know how awful it feels to lose a person that you love. And she went to Jesus like we ask and we say, and she said, Jesus. Jesus, where were you? If you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. What's up with that? I'm grieving. Are you telling me that I have to live the rest of my life without my brother? And Jesus sees Martha's just agony and the pain that she's in and the grief that she's in. And you know that Jesus says, hey, Martha, I want you to know that that Lazarus will live again. Well, she thought that he meant at the time, well, he'll live again uh, at, the, at, at the end. In eternity, he'll live again. That's what he meant. But that's not what Jesus meant. 
And he looks at Martha and he says something that he really wanted her to catch in this moment. And it is this really beautiful claim that Jesus makes. He says this to a grieving sister. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is the claim that he, that, that he made. And Martha, as we know, Jesus actually wept with them. He felt their grief. The shortest scripture in the Bible, Jesus wept. And it was in this moment where he knew he was going to bring Lazarus back to life. But do you know that he joined in their suffering? Do you know that he joins in our suffering? And he makes this claim in the midst of the pain, I am the resurrection and the life. You will not die even though you will die. You will live. I want to read this quote to you. It says this, The space between Lazarus' death and Jesus' calling of him out of the tomb is the space in which Martha sees Jesus for who he really is, her very life. Jesus is not a means to an end, a mechanism through which Martha can change her circumstances. He is the end. Her circumstances drive her to him. It's not that her suffering or our suffering doesn't matter. It matters enough to bring tears to the eyes of the Son of God. If, as Jesus claims, the goal of our existence is relationship with him, finding him in our suffering is the point. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives by believing in me will not die. This is the claim that Jesus made. So I want to take us back to this moment where the disciples are standing with Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, this messed up, jacked up place. And he looks at them and he says, who do people say that I am? Who do people say the son of man is? And do you know that the disciples answered him? They said this, they replied, well, Jesus, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And I imagine Jesus standing there thinking, after all these claims that I've made, after all these miracles, after feeding thousands of people, people miraculously, after all this time, you're telling me that people think that I'm one of three dead guys who came back to life? That's what you're telling me people are thinking about who I am? And so he changes the question, and he looks at them, and he says, well, who do you say that I am? Who do you say? What do I mean to you? And I believe that this is a question, Kalos Church, that God is asking us today. If Jesus was standing here today, and he looked at you, and your heart, and your life, and your family, and he just said, hey, who, who am I to you? Who do you say that I am? You know, I think it's very important that we're able to answer this question. Because as I look around and as I talk to people, there are a lot of different beliefs about who Jesus is. Some people think that Jesus is a conservative Republican. Some people think he's, he's got my political ideology. Some people think that he's an angry God who's just constantly disappointed in his people, who just keeps sinning. Some people think that Jesus is a myth or he was just some sort of symbol. This is what people think today. And so we, God's people, need to be able to answer this question. It's a beautiful and powerful question that he asks his disciples. So I encourage you, go on this journey of discovering who Jesus is. Now, I want to tell you a story. You know, when I was in high school, I was on fire for Jesus. That's what we called it in the 90s. If you were a 90s kid, you were on fire. How many 90s Christians, you know, you were kids or high school, junior highs? Okay, I was too. All right. 
Uh, you know if you're a 90s Christian, if uh, you, you listened to different Christian bands like DC Talk, like Newsboys, like Out of Eden, like Mary, oh, Mary Mary, okay? Uh, we used to wear these famous bracelets, WWJD. What would Jesus do? Okay, now how many of you are like, oh yeah, I had one of those. How many of you had the frog bracelet? Okay, frog, which stood for fully relying on God. Okay, I had one on each side. All right. We also, as 90s on fire Christian kids, we had these compilation CDs, compactus, for those of you that don't know. And they were of all these Christian bands. And they had a version every year, 1996, 1997, 1998, 1990. I had all of the WOW compilation CDs. And they were amazing. All right, I will buy you coffee if you can tell me that you read this. How many of you ever read the Brio Girls magazine? Anybody remember? Okay, you are getting coffee, Morgan and Renee. You are, the, this was a Christian teen girl magazine, my friends. It was all for the girls that were on fire for Jesus. who were teenagers, and it was amazing. Okay, we in the 90s, we also are the generation that read the books, the Left Behind series. We are still recovering from the trauma of the Left Behind <laughs> series, okay? Uh, we, we, we also read the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Also some trauma that we're still working through in our lives. But I was this high schooler, freshman year, I, I was on fire for Jesus. I would bring my friends to church and my friend and I, we led this small group together. I had never led a small group before in my life, and we invited all of our friends. Well, sure enough, I'm telling you, like 30 to 40 girls, freshman girls, showed up in my friend's basement. And we're sitting there, and we're talking about Jesus, and we're getting excited that our friends would come to know Jesus. And I'll never forget, one of the girls raises her hand, and she asks a question about the legitimacy of Jesus. And it started this flame and this spark that night. And all of a sudden, all of these girls began to ask these questions. Well, what about the resurrection? And what about God? And what about the Bible? How do we know that that's true? And why would God let my mom or my dad die of cancer? They began to ask all of these really big questions. And I kid you not, I sat down and I, I wrote out every one of those questions. As well, and while my friend continued to lead the Bible study, I snuck off into another room and I called my mom. And I said, Mom... I have all these girls have questions about Jesus. I don't know how to answer them. I wanted my friends so badly to know who Jesus is, and I didn't want to mess it up. And so I asked her, can you please answer these questions for me so I can go back into that room and answer all the questions? And I don't remember what my mom said, but I think she opened her Bible and she answered a few of them, and I just went back out there and did the best I could back then, right? But I understood and I realized in that moment that I had loved Jesus. I had learned about Jesus as a child, but I didn't really know why I believed what I believed. I couldn't explain it to someone. I couldn't explain the claims that Jesus made or the evidence that backed it up. And the truth is there's so much evidence. There's so many claims. I can't even tell you all right here in this moment. But what I can tell you is that in, in a little bit, we're going to talk about the evidence. And there's some beautiful evidence in the claims that Jesus made. And I want to talk about those today because, like I said, this would have truly helped me as I was telling my friends about who Jesus was, right? As we look at this, number two, what's the evidence of the claims that Jesus made? 
Uh, much of the material that I'm about to talk about actually comes from a book called A Case for Christ by a man named Lee Strobel. This is a great resource for you, those of you that may go on this journey of wanting to know the legitimacy of Christ and who Jesus is. And this is a really cool story. He was a reporter for the Chicago Times, and he actually was an atheist, Lee Strobel. And his wife actually encountered a nurse who was a Christian, and his wife started going to church with this woman. And eventually, she gave her life to Jesus. Well, this made Lee Strobel incredibly angry. In fact, he thought about divorcing his wife because she became a Christian. But instead of doing that, he decided, you know what? I'm going to go on a journey to try to disprove that Jesus is real, that the evidence is real. So he went on this huge journey. And at the end of the journey, this was a reporter, so he was all about the facts. At the end of the journey, Lee Strobel actually says, there is pure evidence in the man named Jesus Christ. And he went from being an atheist to becoming a Christian. And this is the story of many people. So I want to look at some of the evidence that he found. The first one is this. Uh, he found that there was proof of the Bible. There are many copies of the New Testament any, 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 uh, than any other ancient manuscript in history. The New Testament has four times more manuscripts than that of the Iliad. Archaeologists have find, found 5,843 New Testament manuscripts. They found seven copies of Plato's writings, 10 of Socrates, and five copies of anything by Aristotle. There were no other manuscripts that came close. Isn't that wild as we think about the scriptures? One of the other arguments, that, the claims that Jesus made about himself that made it true were that there were 300 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' life before he was born. Can you imagine on the first day of your birth, your parents hand you 300 prophecies that had been written about you already? That had already happened before he even came to earth. And he couldn't just go through and check them all off. He didn't even have control all of, of all of them. But he fulfilled them. The most compelling evidence that I believe, in my opinion, surrounds the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is the crux of our Christian faith. And I want to look at this. Many people believe and still believe that Jesus never actually died and resurrected. Do you know that Muslims actually believe this? They don't believe that. And, and, and the Quran actually was written six centuries after Christ. But here's something really interesting. The Quran was written all this time later, but the earliest fragment of the Gospel of John was found in ancient Egypt, second century AD, less than 30 years close to the origins of its writings. Isn't that incredible? So some wondered, did Jesus actually die? And there's something called the swoon theory that I learned about uh, this week. Everybody say swoon theory. The swoon, the swoon theory, this is what it means. It's the belief that Jesus didn't actually die from his wounds. He became unconscious and eventually was re resuscitated in the tomb. This is what the swoon theory is called, and a lot of people believe this about Jesus. But there are several reasons why this swoon theory is invalid. Now, I'm going to read to you a giant quote that I want you to follow along so that you can see why it seems that the swoon theory truly is invalid. It says this, for expert opinion, Strobel went to Dr. Alexander Metherall, a research scientist in medicine and engineering. Metherall had studied the medical data concerning Christ's death, and he's convinced there's no way anyone could have survived what the Romans put him through. First, there was the flogging. Soldiers used whips of braided leather. The metal balls woven into it caused deep bruises, which, caught, which broke open during the torture. 
Often the victim's back in such a beating was so shredded that his spine was exposed. Those who didn't die from the flogging went into hypovolemic shock brought on by blood loss. There would be a loss of blood pressure leading to faintness and collapse. And the loss of fluids would result in tremendous thirst. The Gospels indicate Jesus was in shock as he carried his cross to Calvary. He collapsed on the road and Simon of Cyrene had to carry the cross for him. Later Jesus said, I thirst. Then there was the agony of the crucifixion itself. The Romans drove spikes through the wrists and feet of Jesus, spikes that traveled through the median nerves. This caused such enormous pain that a new word was invented to describe it. That word is excruciating. The word literally means out of the cross. Metherol believed that Jesus, like other crucifixion victims, eventually died of asphyxiation. The stress on the muscles and diaphragm put the chest in the inhaled position. In order to exhale, the victim had to push up his feet to ease the tension in the muscles for just a moment. It would be enormously painful and exhaustion would eventually set in. As his breathing, as his breathing slowed, the victim would go into respiratory acidosis, leading to an irregular heartbeat and eventual cardiac arrest. Then in the case of Jesus, to ensure he was dead, a Roman soldier thrust a, peer, a spear into his side. The flogging, massive blood loss, shock, crucifixion, and stabbing. Could Jesus have suffered all of this and survived? Not a chance, said Dr. Methrall. Besides, Roman soldiers had good reason to make certain Jesus was dead. Had he survived, they themselves would have been executed. This is a medical doctor. The Journal of the American Medical Association, a highly regarded peer-reviewed scientific publication, also concluded that he was dead even before the wound was in his side. Medically speaking, the swoon theory is invalid. And this became a question. Then people said, well, okay, if I can't be skeptical that Jesus actually did die... What about resurrection? Did Jesus actually resurrect? Can people really come back from the dead? And so they were asking this question. Maybe he died, but could he have lived again? Well, I want to tell you this. There were eyewitness evidence that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And the first two people that saw Jesus after he resurrected from the dead were two women. And in that day, the gospel writers would have never written that two women were the first eyewitnesses in the scriptures if it were not true because women were seen as nothing. Their word was nothing. They were unreliable witnesses. And yet all four gospel writers wrote that these two women saw Jesus as he, after he resurrected from the dead. Not only that, but soon after his disciples had seen Jesus, after the resurrection, a crowd of 500 people saw him. I love this quote by Lee. He says this, I went to a psychologist friend and said, if 500 people claim to see Jesus after he died, it was just a hallucination. He said, hallucinations are an individual event. If 500 people have the same hallucination, that's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. <laughs> Isn't that wild? And the last sort of like claim and evidence that, that Jesus was real, that really pushed Lee Strobel, this atheist reporter, into becoming a Christian, was that he noticed in the scriptures that Paul, the great Paul the Apostle, before he became a Christian, he was a man who hated and went after Christians and killed them just for believing in Jesus. 
And Paul, who now is famously known for loving and preaching the gospel, Paul himself became a Christian. How do you go from killing Christians to now being a person who speaks the name of Jesus and brings many into the kingdom of God? And Lee Strobel saw this. And if you read in history, in church history, my friends, you will see that whenever Christians were persecuted in India, in China, in the Middle East, whenever they were persecuted, Christianity would spread. It would more and more people would come to know the Lord because they would realize that this is something that people would die for. Why would people die for something they have no hope in? And every single time that happened, Christianity would spread all throughout history. If you read church history, you'll see this happen. And, and as we look at this, we have to realize this is huge. You know that the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran. And if you're following the news right now, Iran is possibly undergoing a revolution that hasn't happened since 1979 when the Islamic regime came into that country and began to annihilate Christians and began to shut down churches. And do you know what happened? The underground church began to grow. These Christians began to tell everyone around Jesus. And it is now estimated that there are a million Iranians who now love Jesus. Amen. Isn't that incredible? Come on, give it up to Jesus for that. I want to read this quote. Our believing or not believing in the resurrection may change us, but it doesn't change the objective reality of what took place 2,000 years ago. And this is a question on which the three great monotheistic religions disagree. Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Muslims believe that Jesus did not die, but that he was instead taken up into heaven. Jews, atheists, and agnostics, for that matter, believe Jesus died and remained dead. These claims are mutually exclusive. At this foundational level, Religious truth cannot be untangled from historical truth. Even when we narrow our scope to monotheistic faiths, to say that all religions are equally true is to lose our grip on history. And so important that we begin to understand this. And I want to tell you, church, there is evidence of Jesus in the scriptures, evidence that the Bible is real, evidence that Jesus died and resurrected. There's all of this evidence. But I want to ask you today, whether it's evidence in your life or just that Jesus changed your life, if Jesus was here today and he looked at you, who would you say that he is? Who would you say that he is and what he means to you today? I want to tell you, church, you may not know where Jesus stands with you, but you can be certain of where you stand with him. Because where you stand with him is that he loves you. And he loves you so much that we just read about the excruciating death that he went on because of the joy set before him. And do you know what that joy was? It was you. In all of your failures, in all of your faults, in all of your shame, in all of your hardened heart, in all of your skepticism, Jesus loves you. And you don't have to worry about where you stand with him. You might not know where he stands with you, but you can know for certain that you stand with him in a place where he will do anything for you. He will give his life for you. And the word of God says that nothing can separate you from the love of of Jesus. Who do you say that he is? I want to close with this. You know, some people are like Lee Strobel. They need the facts. They need the evidence. And that's okay. I believe we've got to engage with our mind and our intellect and our heart around this question of who Jesus is. Or maybe you're like Pastor Pradeep and I's friend who went on the journey for evidence, 
But the opposite happened, and this is what he said. He said, I don't know much of anything for certain, but I am starting to feel that proof might be the opposite of faith, maybe even an enemy of faith. I do think rationality and research and honest examinations of the evidence are important, even vital to a well-lived life, but they have their limits. Both C.S. Lewis and Kierkegaard have argued that those limits were placed there by God with intention. No matter how high the mountain of our knowledge, there will always be an insurmountable gap requiring us to take a leap of faith. I think that's because maybe faith isn't something epistemic. It's not something to be known, but rather experienced. Or maybe you're like me. You didn't need the facts, but all you needed was your story. I, on the first day of my birth, was abandoned and left at the doorstep of a stranger just after a few hours of being born in a Hindu nation in India. And I look at my life and I cannot believe that God took that little vulnerable baby girl, vulnerable baby girl, and somehow had her be adopted by Midwest Kansas people who love Jesus. People who represented Jesus Christ, who said, God sets the lonely in families. This is all I needed, was to look at my life and to say this would not have happened had it not been for the hand of God on my life. I don't know why God chose me, but he did. And I wouldn't be here today had that not happened. And so I've just, I've had this love for Jesus my whole life. I'm so thankful that I was brought into a situation where I was able to learn about who he was. So wherever you are today, if you're on a journey of wanting to know who Jesus is, I commend you for going on that journey. I admire you. You don't have to be a person that sits here or comes to church. You don't have to bring your friends who already know the answer to this question. We're going to discover it together as a church. Amen? We're the body of Christ. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says this. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, you're right. And you know why you're right? You're right because the Father has revealed this truth to you. And I want to pray for you, Kalos. I want to pray that the Father in heaven would reveal to you who Jesus is. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want him to reveal himself to you as we go on this journey together. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the claims that you made about yourself, that you are God, that you are in fact the one who went to the cross and died for our sin and our shame, that we might live and have true life. Thank you for claiming to be the resurrection and life. Father, we believe that this is true. And for all of us that are on a journey right now to discover more of who you are, Father, I ask that you would reveal yourself to us. I ask that you would take off our blinders. You would open up our spiritual eyes and ears. That you would open up our hearts. That when you stand before us, when we stand before you, we would be able to say that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Oh, Father, we love you and we worship you. And even as we're in the process of discovering, we're going to do our best, God, to build upon this faith that we can have in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.
Thank you so much for joining us for the Kalos Church Podcast. Hey, if you feel comfortable, we would love to see you and meet you in person. We meet at 945 and 1130 every Sunday at the Hilton Garden Inn in downtown Bellevue. If you want to join us, head to www.kalos.church. You can get all the information you need and sign up so we can make sure there's a safe place for you to come and experience the beauty of Jesus with you. We'll see you next time.